You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 79 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we are coming to you from Chris and Bob's homes on Long Island, working remotely, of course. The Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Please consider leaving a review or tell someone about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So today joining us is James Nicholson. He's the program and engagement leader at the Morton, Morton, right? Yeah, that's it. Morton Bay Regional Libraries in Queensland, Australia. So we're going to speak with James about working and transitioning from an academic librarian and librarianship to public librarianship, skill mapping, uh, his role as state manager for Queensland for the Australian Library and Information Association, which if for those of you not in Australia, we're going to just call it ALIA for the rest of the podcast, Uh, and how his background and philosophy has helped him in his career. But first, let's have a chat with James. So so let's start with this question. Uh, You're originally from the UK, and now you're an Australian citizen. What was the motivation to move halfway around the world? And what was the biggest adjustment living in Australia? Yeah, that's a good, it's a good question. Now, in, <clears throat> in Australia, it's really important. And I hope you don't mind me just beginning by, um, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, uh, acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which I'm broadcasting today. Um, and so uh, I'd just like to pay my respects to the Gubbi Gubbi and Ndambi people. Um, and I also pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, and that's a practice that's really important in Australia uh, to acknowledge those traditional owners. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to begin with that. So thank you. But yeah, it's awesome to be on the, the, the podcast and uh, and starting with a question about uh, how I, uh, the motivation to come over here and um as cliched as it is, and as sad, it may be as sad as it is, it was uh, for, uh, for a woman, unfortunately. You know, it sounds like uh, <laughs> I want to be on more of an adventure. Um, but I met my now wife in the UK, and uh, her visa ran out, came back. And, um, and, and, you know, kind of as that was coming up, you know, I was thinking, well, I don't want this to kind of end, you know. Like, she's the prettiest girl uh, and the smartest woman at that time, you know. Um, the smartest woman that I'd ever met, you know, so I was like, I've got to try and make this happen somehow, but how do you approach someone that you've only kind of been with for about a year about moving the other side of the world? So, you know, it was more like a, Hey, I want to travel. Um, and kind of thought about coming to Australia. Do you live in Australia? <laughs> that kind of situation. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, so anyway, we, uh, I moved home for 10 months, saved up and, and came over and the rest is kind of, history i guess i mean i, I kind of just figured that there's worse places to be dumped if it didn't work out then you know uh, you know i'd just go to the beach that's <laughs> <So, laughs> so all it started is. with a girl right don't most good stories start that way so. yeah that's man this is like goodwill hunting yeah that's pretty cool <laughs> probably well not yeah not quite yeah it's it's uh probably less glamorous but um certainly yeah that's what i came over and and look i guess the biggest adjustments, you know, uh, people used to say what it's like being in Australia. And for me, coming from the UK, I always used to use the analogy that every, I'd not come across one road that didn't have a tree on it. You know, So <laughs> in the UK, there are many roads that don't have trees on them. And I'm talking about those in, you know, in the cities that reasonably don't have a tree in the sense that it's built up and, you know, all of that kind of thing. But even in the cities here, they have trees on them. And really it was a, you know, kind of an example of that, that kind of Australian way of life, which is very much outdoors and the space and, you know, the, the, you know, the, obviously, um, you know, the, 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 the wonderful nature that we get here and, and flora and fauna and so on. So yeah, that was a kind of a good, a, a good example, I guess. Um, All right. So James, what drove you to work in a library setting? And uh, of course we'll talk about this later, right. As we go on, but, um, did you start your librarian journey in the public sector or the academic sector? Yeah, it's, it's good. So when I came to Australia, like I, I kind of got into retail and I always said, hi, oh, you know, and at the time I was doing a lot of DJing, you know, that was back when I was a bit younger and that was kind of 12 years ago, 10 years ago now. And, um, 
And so I was working in retail and that, that figured really, really or sat really well. But I always said, oh, I don't want a career in retail. And, and then eight years later, I realized I had a career in retail because I'd just been repeating that mantra. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of thought, well, you know, what, what am I going to get into? What do I want to do? And in the UK, I'd, been, I'd worked at the National Space Center in the UK. That was when I had um, moved back home as I was saving to come over here. That year, I spent working at the National Space Center and delivering uh, topics on space science topics to the public and, um, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, doing all sorts of varied roles there, you know, like uh, yeah, you're running classes for school kids on, you know, space science stuff and all of that kind of thing. So it was really exciting. So I kind of wanted to work in a museum but there aren't many in Brisbane. And I kind of thought, you know what, I'm, I could already see that if I don't get a job in this one museum, then there's not many other options, you know? So as a bit of an extension, it kind of came across libraries and often libraries are in that glam sector, we call it, you know, galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. Glam is kind of a, a, a you know, a, a catch-all term for a lot of our kind of industry in a broader sense. So I kind of, yeah, just extended a bit into, into libraries and, Funnily enough, I started in um, a public library as my first job, actually, in the sector, but then moved out of that because it was very similar on the front line. It seemed very similar to retail. So, um, yeah, I kind of uh, – and I just finished my master's and was in that kind of academic mindset. So I kind of wanted to move into an academic library. So that's really where I got my first, you know, well, I say proper, you know, but it's where I got most of my experience in libraries was in an academic library, and I've just recently moved moved back to public. That's very, very interesting. I can't wait to talk about that with you later because I have a similar kind of um, transitional back and forth. So <clears throat> tell us what you do at the MBRC library. Now, you can also tell everybody what MBRC stands for uh, because it sounds like you both do both programming and outreach to the community. That sounds like that's that's a very large hat to wear. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, um, so MBRC, Morden Bay Region, region. Well, MBRC, Morden Bay Region Council, regional council. But we, you know, we'd be MBRL, so Morden Bay Region Libraries. So um, the council look after an area, a region, and within that region, we have ten libraries um, and a mobile library bus. So we're the third biggest library service in Queensland behind uh, the Gold Coast and Brisbane. So Brisbane was where I got my first. In fact, Brisbane is the biggest library service before an amalgamation in New Zealand of a couple of services. They were the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere. So they had, they currently have, I think, 33 libraries, something like that. So there's quite a, quite a few there. So, yeah, so... Um, I guess, my, I guess my role has probably three big, comp- uh, or maybe four big components. Um, managing a team of specialists um, and our early childhood literacy leader and their, and their kind of offside of their project officer. So that's a team of only about six people in me. Uh, one, two, three, four, five in me. So in six, six of us in total. Um, we, I, you know, I support those specialists in region-wide strategic programming. So basically running the program strategically across the region. So we need to make sure that for particular, let's say, um, um, reconciliation week, which is to do with um, in, in engagement with the, um, in the indigenous community, um, working together to reconcile, you know, the, 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 uh, the trauma that has come in the past, you know, and and that's a week of kind of that focus, even though it goes on all year, of course. But um, I would make sure that we've got events across the region, not, you know, because individual libraries look after their libraries and they'll look after story time, that kind of thing. But we look across the region. So there's that. And so part of that is building relationships, partnerships, working with community um, and raising the profile of our library whenever we do talks with getting big wigs in to do story time or that kind of thing. And then we also manage, I also manage specialized projects and grants, you know. So, um, for example, we're working with a local or a statewide kind of local author group to pull off a festival next year, a literary festival. So those kind of individual projects and stuff. Yeah. So there's lots going on and lots of stuff fits into engagement and you know, kind of uh, programming. There's lots of stuff that just happens to fall into my lap that maybe is not so much, but I'm happy to do. <laughs> wow. It does seem like a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, there's, there's a fair bit going on. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to chat with James about libraries, maybe a little pandemic talk sprinkled in there, and where we go from here, all kinds of fun stuff. So we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, it's Chris from the Library Pros, and I want to tell you about the book, Best Technologies for Public Libraries, Policies, Programs, and Services. I, along with Nick Tanzi and James Hutter, both amazing technology librarians and previous guests on this podcast, co-authored the endeavor. If you're interested in bringing 3D printing, augmented reality, virtual reality, or drone flying to your library, this book has what you need. It's a roadmap to successfully implementing this technology because we cover purchasing, developing effective policy, finding the right software, and have model programs and services already designed to make planning programs easier. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books or ebooks. I hope you'll check it out. Go ahead, Bob. Hey, welcome back. So we are with James Nicholson, Program and Engagement Leader at the Moreton Bay Regional Council Library in Queensland, Australia. So we touched on this at the last segment um, with your beginnings in the library world. But can you tell us about what it's like to be a full-time academic librarian and how it differs from your role at the MBRC Library and how hard it was to make that transition from to that public sector service model kind of thing? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, it's an interesting question because, you know, working for Alia, actually, you know, that's, that's the Australian Library and Information Association. And you, you've had previous guests uh, on your show from our organization as well. So I told them that I've been name dropping them, you know, so Rob <laughs> and Sally, you know, it just legitimizes my me being on this show. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Rob Thompson will love that. Do we have yeah, to pay them? Oh, is this like an Ellen Druda thing or we say Ellen Druda? Well, because they've, they've grown in their status. So I think they deserve Ellen Druda five bucks or something a piece. Well, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the exchange rate for Australian dollars? Oh, I don't know, like twice or something like that. I don't know. I don't know if it's like 80 cents on the dollar or whatever it is. So, so Ellen's like 15 bucks now. Something like that. So the big shtick was our very first guest is Ellen Druda. Yeah. And she, every time we mention her name, she has to pay us $10. It first started with five, then it went to 10. Now, now she became a library mover and shaker. We're up to $15. So she owes us a lot of money. She's basically retired on our dollar. (laughs) So, uh, so So, how do you pronounce that name? Ellen Druda? Druda. Druda, Yeah. That's it. So right there. You you owe her 15 bucks. That's 30. Ellen Druda? Ellen Druda. Is that it? Druda. Druda. Is that right? Druda. Yeah. Ellen Druda. <laughs> and you're going to have to pay her a fortune. <laughs> oh, man. Brilliant. So we didn't Brilliant. mean to interrupt, but yeah, name dropping Rob Thompson is always fun yes. because we can always make fun of Rob now, too. Yeah. And, Sally, right? and Sally, we just adore Sally. So God, Rob gets 20 cents per mention at the moment. He's got a bill. <laughs> we'll just send him a case of bass. He'll be fine. Bass or, yeah, or, or Guinness or something. He'll be fine. That's at it. 10 o'clock in the morning. At 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so, so, go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. 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 I, I, I digress, but I couldn't help it. But uh, but uh, I guess my role at Ali as the peak body is, is that I, I get a lot of people talking about, you know, obviously that need support in, in their careers and moving careers, moving streams, you know, from academic to public and that kind of thing. And and I did that and it was really, it was really tricky because the two, for me, the two areas are completely different, you know, completely different jobs in academic libraries it's very strategic we were doing a lot more research support in my role so I was um doing scholar I was a scholarly communications officer so I was basically supporting academics in uh their strategic publishing where they would publish how they would publish um how that would maximize tables and that kind of thing and you know maybe helping them with open access content all of that kind of stuff and then you know, the public library is very much, you know, community driven, you know, satisfaction ratings, of course, and making sure we meet that community need and, you know, doing it in a way and, you know, that is, you know, it, that is um, efficient as can be. The budgets are not, you know, massive and all of those kind of things. So, um, uh, yeah, it was just it was just very, very different, I guess. Um, uh, but moving into public libraries, they 
they do the kind of they do that community work and the programming and the that that operational stuff so 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 well and 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 i think academic libraries could learn a lot from that um but that what public libraries could learn from academics is is this strategic approach to a lot of the work that that, that they do there and and so and so that's why kind of i guess I was brought into the role in public libraries and, and why I, I kind of felt more comfortable because I knew they would kind of pick me up for a particular reason. And hopefully that's what I can deliver. Whether or not I do, you might need to speak to my boss, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, in academic in, in academic librarianship there, is there a push for publishing, a lot of publishing articles and stuff like that? No, so we don't we don't know, basically. So it, ironically, it's the exact, it's the opposite. We're trying to push people to be uh, um, uh, uh, what you call it uh, academic like practitioners you know so publishing you know publishing um, practitioners um, we don't have those kind of tenure I guess you have like a tenure track thing yeah. like, like we, we, we just don't have that here at all so actually finding space to do research is something you kind of have to fight for a little bit and actually so we're trying to we were at the time trying to fight for that space having said that we do a lot of this, you know, for example, um, people like Claire Thorpe at the University of Southern Queensland is, are doing, you know, great things over there um, uh, under the, the guidance previously of Carmelo Sullivan, who is now kind of uh, gone on secondment. So Claire is now the director of the library over there. And she does a lot of work um, uh, with uh, uh, in evidence-based practice, basically. So, um yeah, so there is there is the element of uh, yeah, evidence based stuff, but it's it's not quite quite the same as having to churn out those put those publications. I guess, yeah, yeah, because that's a real struggle in in academia here as, as a librarian. You're you there's a lot of pressure. To, I mean, I can't speak for every university, but there is pressure to to publish. Yeah, that's tough, and yeah. I know that because you know, like I know the the pressure because. You know, I used to give strategic scholarly advice, and you know, we'd do it to HDR students. You know, so the PhD students would be giving the advice to them, and you know, you just feel bad that you, you kind of they're right right at the beginning, and you, you're telling them basically how to start to churn out the articles. You know, and it's it's you know that's anyway that's a whole another conversation. I think <laughs> <laughs> it's a section three conversation, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So one one trend in libraries that has now accelerated with the COVID-19 pandemic uh, is the concept of eliminating fines for late returns of library materials. So what has been your approach to that? Yeah, but that's that's interesting. Did, did you know about my website? Is that why you, you, like, you're kind of asking me this question? Did you know that I had a website on library fines? No. 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 Well, there you go. How do we miss there that during research and development? How did we? Yeah. <laughs> 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 No, no, no. It's well, you, 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 you should, you should. That's fine because it's actually not up and running, and and it says something in itself. And I'll explain why. So about a year and a half ago, or whatever, I went to a conference called NLS Nine, and actually Sally used to be on. Sally Turbot used to be on the committee for NLS. I want to say seven or eight. You know, I'm not sure which one, or but but maybe she would shout at me. Maybe it was earlier. Maybe it was later. But um, basically, it's a conference that focuses on. Uh, new librarians or recently graduated uh, librarians and so on. So it's a lot uh, less, you know, kind of not aggressive, but it's a lot less less formal. So it's a great way to get into conferences. And um, I delivered a talk there on basically it's not fine to fine. So talking about the actually the 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 barrier to access on fines, and you know, did a whole heap of research on actually the cost benefit on taking fines away in relation to staff chasing up fines and all of these different things and, you know, presented all of that. And that actually ignited a conversation within the public library Alliance kind of where they were trying to do a bit of an audit on who was still delivering fines and so on. And um, so that gained a bit of traction was great. And I had a website called it's not fine to find.com maybe.com. <laughs> and the reason I forget now is because the uh, domain name, uh, kind of expired and I didn't renew it because we've come so far that actually now in Queensland um there's almost no one that that delivers that, that has fines now um and it's in the state library guidelines so um to to basically have a fine free for reservations and for overdue items so 
and um, people still pay if they break something or don't bring it back i guess but but that kind of fines in the overdue so yeah i'm totally on board with that and um yeah it's getting it's it's basically i feel like that's now an, an inevitable inevitability there's a word at 6am um for uh yeah for almost all of australian public libraries now you know they're, they're basic you know so the next bit would be trying to get academic libraries to do the same some have but but many haven't so that's that's the new trend here in suffolk county here in long island new york um and i think it's a statewide thing too i i can't speak for um for the rest of the state um i know new york library association has been advocating for it um and i know bob you've had a lot of success with with fines free and we are moving towards that model now especially after covid because how can you find somebody who couldn't bring a book back because of you know being in lockdown yeah big time success over here it was it was well received uh, as i was you you think it would be but um you know what else is a is a growing trend is zero percent increases for budgets too yeah huge yeah huge so um, yeah, and it's interesting you say about COVID because not only you know you, you know you're quite right about that kind of barrier who can afford those kind of fines and so on, but but also COVID has been a great leveler in the sense that it's given an example of you know the sky hasn't fallen in given that we've stopped fines, but it has helped people out. You know what I mean? Oh, and there's so many examples of that. You know, like where you get you've done something new and oh my god, someone from the library service has gone on camera on social media in their uniform and oh look you know we've not all burnt down into ashes and it's okay and we yeah. can you know what i mean we can do that a bit more it's fine well know? i think that it's also a cost benefit analysis too yes is there some type of revenue this deriv be a, as a derivative you know from that fine collection sure there is but what's your return on investment for being more user friendly to the to the user now look you're always going to have people that are not going to return the item so then there your recourse is to bill um and, you know, every library is going to have a different model with regard to that. Some are still doing fines if the, people don't bring museum passes back on time or uh, they don't bring back the realia. So, you know, talking about, you know, hotspots, mobile hotspots for, for Wi-Fi or um, laptops yeah. or stuff like that. So I don't know if that's going to go away anytime soon because you don't want to turn into a Best Buy, you know, like a free yeah. Best Buy. But you also, um, you know you want to be mindful of the things that fly out the door a lot, like your books, like your DVDs, like, you know, your stuff that's heavily trafficked and, and consider, well, you know what we do auto renews. If there's no holds for three, three auto renews. So literally you're getting the book for 90 days, basically yeah, uh, the material for 90 days. And if you can't bring it back after 90 days, if you haven't read the book after 90 days, well then you're just me because that's, I can't read a book in 90 days, but <laughs> you can't find it after 90 days. That's a problem. Well, yeah, it's usually holding up a coffee table or something, but um, but yeah, I mean, there's that ROI that you have to really think about because, you know, if you're, if, especially if you're working in a community that we're alive and every library is essential to a community, but if you're talking about some underrepresented communities where the library is more than just a, 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 you know, a library, it's a community hub. It's a, it's a resource that is invaluable. Um, you know, you really have to think about, well, maybe fines isn't, isn't a good model for that particular atmosphere. Oh, I definitely, I definitely, you know, is, is contrary to the, you know, I would hope the values of most librarians and most library institutions, but, you know, it's interesting that you talk about the channel investment and so on, but actually in my talk, the presentation I gave, I show, showed a real life example of a library service down South and, and, um, and that actually their costings showed that they would save money by, by removing fines because of the time invested in managing those fines. Um, and that actually the, the, the return rate was very high, you know, like they didn't have people just stealing books. They already had people stealing books, books at a very, very low level. You know, there was still a, a you know, a, a, a shrinkage rate, but, but, um, yeah, they, 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 it was a, a cost saving to introduce that, you know? So, um, yeah, it's interesting anyway, it's not the same for every library service. Of course, it depends on the size and so on, but, Certainly, it's not uh, the kind of black hole that maybe some would have it seen. Exactly. Sky's not falling. So <clears throat> we've been texting back and forth. And, you know, first it was over Twitter. Then then I discovered WhatsApp because the rest of the world yeah. uses WhatsApp except here in the States. And, <laughs> okay. uh, and it's you know, so much easier than Facebook Messenger. So we've been texting in the past about skill mapping. So it's much more than understanding what skills you bring to, you know, to a job when you're applying for a job. 
It's more of a human resources management resource that can be used to assess current employees' strengths and weaknesses, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I mean, I think most library services want to understand, you know, the skills that their staff are, you know, possess, you know, because I think a lot of the time we are very narrow in what we're asking of our staff in terms of, you know, uh, the, the role might dictate that you have particular skills in these areas, but that doesn't mean that we're, you know, using the full skill base that that particular staff member has. And so understanding, you know, where their uh, passions or what they're, what they're, and, and that kind of goes a little bit in hand with their, their skills, um, where they lie and, and, and being able to, uh, keep track of that is really useful for a number of reasons. I guess it's useful for, um, from a management perspective, you know, so, so simply like that human resources, being able to know who to put onto what project and those kind of things. Um, but the main driver, I guess, the, 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 the real value is, is for the, the staff member so that we can continue that <clears throat> progression. You know what I mean? Like you can continue that, um, that professional development and, you know, people are in libraries for a long time. And so being able to develop those skills and to, to, to continue to grow as, as someone who works in the sector <clears throat> is really important. And then, to be able to note that down and so to be able to show the organization that you have invested that time, you know, helps in all sorts of things from, you know, just becoming a leader, even if you don't get the promotion, because maybe there isn't a role there, but of course it helps with that promotion. But, but regardless, you know, you're becoming a leader within your position, you know, leaders on, it's not a top down. We need leaders at every level. And one way you can do that is to expand your skills and to expand your skills. We want to kind of track that to see, you know, what areas you can develop in. We all need to develop in different areas, you know, so that's one way of helping that. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense because you can assess where your strengths and weaknesses are. So then you can become even more well-rounded because let's face it, librarians are jacks of all trade, but masters of none. Cause you kind of have to be, you have to be, you know, know about, you know, reader's advisory for a kid who's interested in Harry Potter and wants to make, take the next step. Or maybe a senior who's reading, um, I don't know, Patterson, and they want to see something like that. And then you have to transition to, well, why doesn't my Android phone make a phone call? And, or why does my, you know, how does iMessage work? Or, and then you transition to a 3D print, and then you transition to fixing a laptop, and then you transition to placing holds and, and, and doing collection development. So you kind of have to know a little bit of everything when you're a librarian. And I think um, skill mapping can be an excellent resource for somebody if it's not an institutional thing where the, the institution actually conducts it, if you did it on your own and then approached your bosses with it, I think that would show a real um, interest in investing more of yourself into the, into the organization. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, you know, we, we, we do it as well through Alia. We have uh, skill audits as well. So people, anyone can log on to the, you know, this is just chopping in some plugs, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but uh, actually, uh, the organization has these skill audits, you know, and, and you can go into there, have a specialization. You can look at what are the kind of benchmarks, what are the kind of uh, base skills that we need to learn. And that's really useful for if you want to move streams. We were talking about moving from academic to public. Well, you know, people might have that idea, but not quite sure what skills they need and so you go on get this skill audit and then you self uh, assess and kind of go you know these are areas i need to improve in and showing that you know i guess uh, initiative to go and you know professionally develop in those areas will help that transition as well but it, but it, as well if you were staying in this in the same sector then that brought the same stream you know i say stream in terms of like academic or special or school or you know public then yeah you can still use you use that kind of skill mapping to help progress your career for sure. It's interesting. Uh, Chris, you might agree that you see it all the time in commercial institutions. Like, you know, if you go to work for a large company, uh, they routinely have third party uh, organizations come in and interview their employees and skill map exactly like that. And even tell you some of their, you know, their work profile, their personality profile, and then they match it better to suit their jobs. And they kind of take some roles away and add some roles that they're, that they may be better at. And then they kind of see how that melts in. And I don't, I mean, Chris, do you see that, especially in the States on our side, I, I don't see too many libraries, academic or public, really investing in that type of, uh, you know, model. The only thing, the only thing I would say would be like when you have those yearly reviews, yeah, but, but that's, that's horrific. a criticism. That's those are just... mostly horrific. And even if, and the new thing was a couple of years ago, what the self, remember the self reviews? Yeah. 
hey, just send out this form and you fill it out. And and, and it's just, I don't know, but I, I love the idea of bringing that to the, to the, I mean, for us, the public library sector, but um, it's positive. Awesome. It's it's a positive thing. It's not a, you, yeah. you, you lack a, you know, you, you stink at readers advisory. You're not good with helping patrons. You don't have people skills, you know, versus, yeah. okay, here's a map of the things you're doing really well. And here's a, a map of things that are maybe 15%, 20%. You need to get to up to 40%. And the end result is always positive because the person, not only do they feel better about what they're doing because they're doing more of what they were meant to do or they're good at, right? You get a better production. So if you, when they do the, um, the personality profile, if they put somebody that's more, um, you know, uh, aggressive with somebody that's more timid, right? You're going to know right away, maybe these two folks shouldn't work, you know, in the same six foot space, right? So, yep, exactly. So but, I don't know. It's a very it's a good discussion. Yeah. Here, here's the thing though, what I find interesting, you speak to almost any library director, I bet, and I guarantee, and for, you know, and, and sadly, this is probably my response to a question later on. Um, but uh, you say, you know, what's, what, what, what's the thing that's most important about your library? What do you love the most or that kind of thing? And almost everyone will say the staff, you know, because, because they're the people that obviously drive the whole institution. There's no institution without, you know, the staff and all that kind of thing. But, by doing you know i mean just to hear self-assessment kind of yearly reviews just makes me cringe because it shows contempt for the staff there's no investment in 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 you know in developing them in supporting them to become you know what they want to become and then in turn the organization will reap that benefit now you know so yeah like it's it's definitely important to invest that time in the staff and if you can't even kind of map what you've already got how will you kind of support new people coming in or whatever it was almost a fad here right chris the self-assessments was almost a fad over here yeah yeah it's almost laziness on the part of administration because they really just don't want to deal with doing that you know those you know assessments it lasted a couple of years and the school districts did it the libraries did it and it was horrifically bad it was just oh yeah wow it was like a it was like a um you know choose your own adventure type of yeah exactly uh, assessment <laughs> yeah all of a sudden everyone was experts in so many different areas right <laughs> exactly right yeah. you're like wait a second you don't do this why are you assessing yourself on something you don't do yeah. uh, so let's is this a good time to shift gears I guess and talk about the Australian Library and Information Association you mentioned it before Alia am I saying it right yeah that's right. And your relationship to it, uh, you are like our good friend Rob Thompson uh, in New South Wales and his predecessor and, and good friend Sally Turbot, uh, the state manager for Queensland. Uh, tell us what your function is and some of the neat things you have done for the membership of Queensland. Cool. Well, uh, we're like the kind of the peak body for the library sector, I guess, in in, in Australia. You know, so um, I won't you know go too much in, in, into Ali specifically as a, an organization total but i guess we do a lot of uh, we do a huge amount of advocacy we do a huge amount of uh, professional development training um we accredit courses over here we maintain professional standards but we support um anyone that works in the library sector and indeed extended through to libraries and uh, sorry galleries and archives and museums and so on so there's uh, and we run national conferences which help you know you know more broadly help the the industry but also individuals so there's all sorts of stuff going on there but for me I'm that kind of linchpin between our head office and all the members in Queensland and we have uh, the best part of 900 members in Queensland um but to give you a bit of context I guess the difficulty the challenge from for me is that Queensland is um about 1 1.7 so one million seven hundred twenty-seven thousand square kilometers. I had to, had to look that up before our little meeting, so I figured this might pop up. And uh, we're the second largest state, so two and a half times the size of Texas. So it's wow. it's um it's 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 a massive space. So my role is is to cover all of that area, or the members in that area, I should say. And um, but it has a population of just over five million. So, so they're really spread out people, you know, and well, and given that a lot of those people would be in Brisbane and the southeast corner, you know. So, I've got to kind of cover a massive area, but also all the streams. So, school, special, academic, public, you know, all different types like that, and then at all levels as well. So, everything from students and new graduates right through to you know director level. So, we might be giving you know, uh, support to anyone in different levels. So there's loads of challenges there. And I guess, you know, some of the cool stuff that I've, I've done to try and, um, 
help members in that area is, or, or help members in Queensland is, uh, you know, I've taken trips out west, 10 hours inland to Kunamulla, which is a place, you know, up far out west and done a big trip to understand, uh, or sorry, not understand, but better uh, understand our regional and rural libraries who, you know, are in very remote, remote areas, you know, a couple of hours to the next town, you know, and they might have a few staff. And so understanding their challenges because you get very Southeast Queensland focused. So yeah, that was, and I did the same thing by doing a trip the following year up to Cairns because I've been in this role for about two and a half years. So each year I try and take one trip to an area that I wouldn't normally make contact with through other events, like the social events I host there, the forums I host and, and, and that kind of thing. I also do webinars. Um, and then every day we do stuff like supporting members with resume reviews and cover letters and ideas around how to map from academic to public libraries or public libraries to academic libraries because I've kind of done that. So supporting people in moving though in, into different sec- different areas all, all sorts of stuff like that and 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 also go to more formal events like on behalf of alia in the state you know so if we've got something at the state library um i'll go and represent alia there as well so yeah there's it's it's really varied and and there's yeah lots going on and and, and i hope i'm meet most of our members but it's it's tricky you know that that's a big area <laughs> well it's interesting too because i was uh w- we won't say stock, but I will say I was looking at LinkedIn and, and some of the other resources and stuff. And I saw so much that you do for the state, you know, with representing Alia and all the different programs that you have and all the resources. And that seems like a full-time job in and of itself, right? Well, that's right. I mean, it, yeah. And that's the, that's the difficult. So, you know, um, I, I do that on about 10 hours a week, you know, so that's not a huge, huge amount of, of time to, to, to get across all of those areas but thankfully as an organization alia also does a lot of national stuff you know so that a lot of the libraries can tap into that stuff like national simultaneous story time where we get over a million kids reading you know and actually this year we've teamed up with the space agency in australia and nasa and they're going to read our national simultaneous story time from space so tune in there like that's in uh, next year in may that's That's very cool Okay, so one last thing um, we wanted to bring up that I learned about you actually is that you have your bachelor's degree in philosophy from Lancaster University. So tell yeah. us what you know how that background has supported your work in librarianship. I mean, we can even talk about your Critlib workshops and and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. tell us because, like I, I we had talked about off mic before, it's fascinating to me when somebody has a has a a, um, a philosophy degree and what you really can do with it. So off you go. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, I think, I think in the outset, you know, I just want to get off my chest that it's really, really frustrating in Australia and uh, as a, as a philosophy graduate, because, or actually anyone from the arts more generally, because what they've recently done is initiated a plan to increase the um, fees of uh, tertiary education, uh, of university fees for um, many of the art-based subjects. So, you know, philosophy, example, for example, would, you know, increase fees and then they're going to reduce the fees in those kind of very um, manufacturer or STEM-focused kind of areas, I guess, um, to drive industry, you know, and, and I think that's extremely short-sighted and I'll get that and I'll, I'll explain that a little bit more because that feeds into a book that I'm reading that I love at the moment Um that I want to bring, you know, I think libraries have a part of, and that's kind of thinking about long-term thinking. But so, yeah, so that, so that, that's really frustrating, but it's interesting because uh, counterintuitively I go on social media and I literally at the moment with COVID see everyone going through an existential crisis, you know, like, you know, what's the meaning of what I'm doing? You know, this has stopped me from, from uh, going to work and all of a sudden I'm spending far more time with my family and reassessing values and, you know, and actually, uh, unfortunately, our colleagues down in, in Melbourne going through a very, very difficult time in, in very strict lockdown at the moment, you know, with curfews and so on. And so understanding what's, you know, important or even just how you manage your life and so on is very philosophically based. Um, yet, you know, as a nation, we don't seem to value or at least engage in philosophy in, in, a, in a very direct way. So I guess um, 
that feeds in, you know, th- th- this is something that's always on my mind. In fact, my bookshelf, th- the listeners won't, won't be able to see it, but I'm on a Zoom call and and behind me, my bookshelf, not that side, hold on this side, all this bookshelf <laughs> is all philosophy books. So I basically um, collect philosophy books and try to read as many as I can. But unfortunately, some are a bit dry, but uh, yeah, we get through. And um, yeah, and, and, and so one is bring that into the library space and one, you know, kind of movement in libraries is, is, is crit lib or critical librarianship you know it kind of got t- coined i think oh now you make a test of me now i want to say maybe 2014 uh maybe a touch earlier actually um with the hashtag in twitter crit lib so that was slightly differently of course critical librarianship has been around for decades you know um and that you know stems out of um for, uh, women's rights and um f- falls into um the um uh, you know, equity across, you know, diversity in, in our, in our sector for all sorts of, uh, marginalized groups. And, and, and that's been going on for many, many years, but, you know, certainly, um, you know, I want to add to and gain traction there. And, and so we, we set up these crit lib workshops where basically was built on Sally's idea. She did it in New South Wales and I built on that. And it's just getting people together to discuss really difficult topics and being uncomfortable for the day and understand, you know, uh, you know, the, and, and addressing and, and acknowledging our privilege, certainly mine being, you know, a white straight male and, and what that means being in the library sector and, and, and what more importantly, it means in representing, you know, culture and representing our uh, nations when people from these marginalized communities go into our, go into these spaces, you know, and, and, and how that affects them and what, and, but there's, I mean, there's so much more. There's stuff around the the, the, the change, the, ne- the change that needs to happen in the power structures, the changes that needs to happen in, you know, in our workforce to make it more culturally safe to it, you know, so that people from these communities would like a career in librarianship. You know, there's a lot of it is just ingrained in the very institutions, you know, that we work in, and it's so ingrained that it takes a lot of time to break that down. So, right. you know, I'm really interested in how we break it down, but also how we build it back up and where and and those conversations around you know what it means to have a a good institution and where we go from here that kind of thing so yeah all of that stuff is really interesting fits feeds into my philosophy and yeah and it's funny when you talk about philosophy people think you know you're talking about aristotle and and, you know greek philosophers and all that stuff but really there's a practical you know there's business philosophy and there's a structural philosophy and you know it's more than just guys in white robes from you know 300 bc there's a, there's you you can have a philosophy we have a philosophy on this podcast it's just not to suck but you know you, you can have a philosophy <laughs> how are we doing so far how are we doing i don't know what's that sucking so turn the vacuum off um so you know you can have a philosophy about and philosophy can just basically means and correct me if i'm wrong cuz you're the major and i'm just an idiot but you know, you know, the philosophy is just a method to to attain a goal, right? Am I kind of off on that? Oh, I'm getting the eyebrow. Oh no. Yeah. Well, no. It is, well, <laughs> you see, this is the thing. This is the thing. It's really difficult to define what philosophy is. I mean, it, you know, it depends on context and all sorts of different things. You know, um, people would say, you know, there's the, the, the joke would say would be, you know, what is philosophy? And you reply with exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it doesn't. It doesn't like. It's a way of thinking. It's a change in the way that you act through life. It's what you know. There's there's all sorts, of, and there's you know there's different streams around logic or ethics or aesthetics. It permeates almost every area of of, of society, and everyone's engaging in philosophy in one way or another. They just probably don't realize, and I think if they took a more and this is why, you know, we need to invest in our philosophy majors because you can transfer that skill of understanding what, why you're saying what you're saying, or, you know, or at least, you know, address, you know, at least questioning why you're saying what you're saying. And if we did that more, we would address our biases a lot more and understand our privilege a lot more, which would contribute to, you know, a far more just society, I would say. Um, and yeah, and it, the flow on effect from there. And of course, you know, you have a more just society, you have a more economically viable society, you know, it's a far more productive society. So, you know, that's where, 
you know, you come into this long-term thinking, you know, instead of just this short-termism, we need people to fill this job. So we're going to reduce fees in this. And now we've got, yeah, well, that's, that's great. You know, but where do we go in 10 years time, 20 years time, 50 years time, you know, so hundred years time. So it's a never ending discussion. For sure. And, and, you know, and, and, and I guess I want to just, you know, I wouldn't be a librarian if I didn't have a book recommendation. So, <laughs> so I always kind of throw in a book recommendation anywhere. And, and I'm reading at the moment, it's called The Good Ancestor. And it's by a philosopher. It's called How to Think Long in a Short Term World by Roman Krisnarik. Um, and that book talks about an interest. So in Australia, there is a term called, um, Terra Nullius. So that was a fallacy that was, um, uh, which was basically brought up by colonialists to say that um, Australia was nobody's land. Obviously, that's false. It, you know, we've had indigenous people here for 80,000 years, and there's, you know, that's indisputable. Um, so that 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 was a, a falsism, but it's a way of justifying, you know, the essentially the 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 taking, stealing of the land. Um, and there's a, a term that Roman comes up with called tempus nullius. So that's essentially nobody's time. So what we're, what he's talking about is that we're taking the, we're taking opportunity, we're taking resources, we're stealing from future generations. We're acting like there is no one's time in the future. You know, there will be no one there. And that's not just not true. There will be generations there hopefully, but you know what I mean? Like there will be people there and we're stealing from them by our climate action, by, our, you know, all sorts of different things, you know, by the structures that we're building, the way that we're doing things, the way we're in, you know, kind of setting the, the world up, you know? So um, it's a really interesting thing. And I want to incorporate a bit of that into libraries. And I feel like that's something libraries can do. We've been around for many, many, many years, um, but we have to change to, to when we think about what, what will it look like in, 200 years and let's build for that future so we're not just reactive and going let's try and survive in this next 10 or 20 years let's you know if we think that it's worth saving then let's build for you know in long-term thinking so it's there for not just my kid but my kids kids you know and, and their kids and that kind of thing so anyway i could talk all day about that sorry <laughs> it's okay oh, no that's great great, great. we great. have a smart person on the podcast this is great <laughs> not that we have it in the past we're not talking that's why we're not talking exactly because <laughs> these two dummies listening to this this is great smart man has entered the room <laughs> <laughs> anyone that knows me just knows i talk a lot that's it no that's never a problem <laughs> but we want to thank you for taking a time out of this early morning for you to, to speak with us because it's always a challenge to speak to people on the other side of the planet in real time so i'm glad yeah. we're we're able to, to find that window of opportunity, especially before daylight savings time ends here and begins there, because then it becomes almost impossible unless it's really late at night, really early in the morning. So when we come back, we're going to ask James our top 10 library questions, or like what we like to call the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. And we always give credit where credit is due to Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming this list of questions. And she's sick of us bringing this up at this point that she named it, but too bad. 10 bucks. 10 bucks. I'm oh, not paying Melanie. Come on. Oh, no. She should pay us by now. Well, I know, right? So <laughs> she's the one that came up with the name for the list of questions we asked our guests. So we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, so. We are back with James Nicholson, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. The questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, a source for library news that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lidhub.com. They do a great job educating and informing library professionals on great topics from all over the world. Thank you so much, Literary Hub. Okay. So you ready? Yeah. All right. So 
First question, what did you want to be when you were a child? Uh, quantity surveyor or a fighter pilot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so it begs the question, which fighter did you want to fly? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, well, I was into the, the kind of World War Two hurricanes and spit. And I was going to say Spitfire or hurricane, not a mosquito. Yeah. No. 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 The, the old school best of the British. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. So, what what is your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? Yeah, that was that was uh, that was my mom, and we used to go to this. We call it a demountable. Do you know what that is? Like a like a put like a, a a room that's a box that's kind of like it's not meant to be there for very long but um it ends up staying there for years you know it's kind of like a temporary building like a trailer like almost like kind of like a trailer but without wheels you know like a static big static box kind of thing it's like anyway it's basically a slightly temporary building but it ends up staying there for years because inevitably it goes up because they have no money and then they have no money to build the building so <laughs> so uh, yeah this library was tiny but it was great Okay, so it's my turn, right? It's your of turn. Of course. So I, good job paying attention, Chris. See, I told you, we're not the smart ones here. So when did you decide to work in a library? If not, what was your first career path? Because many librarians and staff choose the profession as a second career. Yeah, so um, I left university, worked in a bank activity instructor after that, and then worked in a nightclub, National Space Center, retail, and then libraries. <laughs> There's a few different things in there. <laughs> You're busy. Wow. Yeah. Um, so who's your favorite fictional librarian? This is this is a great question. This was hard to answer, but um Ron so this is a real left field. No one will know what I'm saying here, but look up Ronnie Barker in a and, and this is a sketch that they do. They're actually he's actually a comedian and he does it with Ronnie Corbett, and they're called the two Ronnies, and they do a sketch called The Confusing Library. And it's basically a sketch between one of them going in and the other one saying that they categorize books by size or by color. And it's just that kind of interaction where they're just being silly. Oh, it's cool. such a great, you can YouTube it, but make sure you get the extended one. I think it's about three minutes 30 because you just get the very end, like the last sentence or two is funny too. But yeah, Google the two runnies, the confusing library. Go check that out. Yeah, you're not kidding. So what would you be doing if you were not working in a library? Uh, that's a tough one too because you know I kind of went through that process you know a number of years ago when I decided to get into libraries I was like you know kind of what do I want to do uh, but I suppose it would be the medical field if anything you know I'm not sure what what area but uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity and it's very fulfilling work I would say no fighter pilot huh all right yeah, well, not, not these days. I've got too much of a dad bod these days. For <laughs> the weight limit would be too, you know, would be a problem. Well, we, we could all drive the, the jet that fuels the other jets, right? That would be okay. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so we can do with dad bods, right? Yeah. Uh, so what is your favorite section of the library? Uh, that, that one's easy. That's the non-fit 100s, you know, just stand there. So they're 110s, 120s, 140s. All philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Metaphysics (laughs) and ethics and that kind of thing. I love it. Yeah. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to the library? You know, (laughs) these are tricky questions. It took me ages to have a think about some of these. and, and, And I would say house building workshops. So one where basically you come in, you learn how to build a house and given that you've, we've got infinite space and budget, they would build a house and then they can either stay there in that house. So, so everyone gets a free house basically, or they could take it somewhere, you know, so they could build a house, put it on a massive truck and go park it wherever they want. But how cool would that be that, you know, you empower the community to build their own house and then they have a house to take away with them. It'd just be the best. It'd be, It'd be awesome. like a library habitat for humanity. Yeah, yeah, like Jimmy Jimmy Carter stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. All right. So what do you absolutely love about your library? Oh man, like well, I talked about this earlier and you know, it's a cliche, but it you know, it's the the, the people that I work with because without them there is no library. It's as simple as that. And that's the the argument between little street libraries libraries in inverted commas and normal libraries is that you know the difference is that there's no people in those you know so the people add the value they add value to when i'm there working with them and so i love you know that my colleagues i've only been working in this job six months and they've been awesome wow 
So what is the weirdest, not necessarily worst, but weirdest thing that has ever happened in your library or during your library career? <laughs> you see some cool stuff in public libraries. <laughs> you certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that there was a group that came in on a stag do dressed as the Mario Kart drivers, you know, like kind of all like in, <laughs> you know, like they were going on a Mario, you know, yeah. Mario Kart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they came in, they were looking for the casino and the library is opposite the casino. So uh, they were a bit way off on that one. But um, yeah, it was funny seeing them like walk through, you know, just they were just having a good time. Let's just leave it at that. All right. Does it, so does that question coincide with who is your favorite regular patron? Probably not. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, they weren't regular, but I wish that they were. That would be that would just be an awesome shift every day to do to do that. Um, but look, we we used to have a patron that came in every day to a library I worked in, uh, one of the branches I worked in, and came no, not every day, uh, two or three times a week, and was researching a book, and it was awesome because he was just such a nice person. But he would ask things, get into library loans, and ask questions, reference questions, real reference questions, like how do I find this information? Let's find it together kind of thing. And we'd find that and he would be super, you know, grateful. Um, But I never got his name actually. Uh, or I I feel like I I remember his name, but I don't want to misrepresent him. So um, yeah, but it was just a really fun memory of of this guy coming in and, and yeah, those kind of interactions were just a nice escape from how do you join the Wi-Fi and where's the toilets? (laughs) 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 <laughs> that's universal no matter where you are in the world there is, definitely. so our final question what are people without library cards missing out on oh, man i mean i think this would be similar across many libraries and i guess for us you know there's hundreds of thousands maybe if not millions of items resources and books that they can check out they'd be missing out on e-resources like you know what databases ebooks audiobooks all access for free you know kind of um uh, platforms that you can learn to drive on you know ones for helping your career um things like lynda.com all of that kind of stuff but then our local history and ancestry software missing out on programs like we've created a minecraft server and you need to be a member just to do that um so that we can regulate who goes on and so on but more than all of that i guess you're missing out of it you know, on, on that chance to, um, I guess, be a part of something, uh, something great, you know, like a place to connect physically and virtually. Um, because, you know, we're doing, you know, some library services are having to do more virtual connection at the moment, but that place of inspiration, you know, and it's somewhere where we can learn and the libraries can do better at, you know, being equitable for all. Um, but as we get there, hopefully they become safer places for everyone, you know? So, yeah. And you do that by being a library member because library members are what we report on. So be a library member. That's my top tip. <laughs> well, thanks for being such a great sport and answering our uh, list of questions. So plugs, we have any plugs for you? Yeah, well, not really, unfortunately. Um, plug uh, Alia. Go ahead and plug Alia. We got, we well, got well, lots of listeners down there. Just just before I do that, you see, unfortunately, I haven't I haven't written a book, but um, but you've written a book, haven't you? Uh, yes. <laughs> nice. There you go. I don't. <laughs> what book's that? Oh wow, you're really going to do this to me, right? Yeah. yeah <laughs> Best yeah, technologies well, for public libraries. Yeah, that was a book I wrote with uh, James Hutter from the Port Washington Library in Port Washington, New York, and Nick Tanzi, the assistant director of the uh, South Huntington Public Library in, in uh, South Huntington, New York, Melville, New York. Awesome. Well, there you go. You see, see, that's the kind of plug I want to hear. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A great plug. There um, you go. But I guess my my flip would be just to say, you know, maybe engage, have a look overseas and engage with Alia because a lot of us, you know, look overseas and look at the American Library Association and, and the, you know, and, and the resources they have. And, you know, we have resources too that you could tap into and you can even become a member too from overseas. Um, we have a lot of stuff going on and we'd love to hear from, you know, people from, you know, uh, your neck of the woods as yeah. Well, it's been great because um, uh, Rob Thompson has asked me to speak a couple times for Alia events. So uh, I did a couple things with podcasting and stuff like that. So I always yeah. find it fascinating um, speaking to the Alia people because, look, we're all doing the same job no matter where we are in the world. So um, and that's been the one consistent thing is that we have made many of the same products. Uh, we do the same work and it doesn't really matter where you're standing on the globe. We're all doing the same work. So why can't we share? <laughs> 
Yeah, that's right. And the more diversity in our opinions and, and, and perspectives and backgrounds, you know, will help us get better at everything that we do. And, and that's something we're trying to get better at, uh, you know, in, yeah, in our libraries, but also in our organization at Alia. So uh, I think, we, yeah, that would be great to connect. Well, this has been great, James. So yeah, great, great James, Nichol, thanks, James Nicholson, thanks so much for coming on with us today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Great having you. Okay. So- We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Christo Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.